David Oakes here and welcome to the third and final instalment in my unofficially titled, just for me, Conservation Conversation Trilogy. Having heard from Will Travers and Georgina Lamb, the CEOs of the Born Free Foundation and the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation over the last few weeks, I thought it important to hear from someone who has been out on active patrols, literally putting his life on the line to save some of our planet's most magnificent species. And as we're drawing to the end of our second season, I thought it fitting to go back to where we started this series. So without further ado, talking to me over Zoom towards the end of last month, this is Teresa Crowd, and this is conservationist and all-round good egg, Mr. Mark Carwardine. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh Let's start with something incredibly positive because apparently Barbara Creasy, the Minister of the Environment, Forestry and Fisheries has said that rhino poaching in South Africa has dropped by 53% in the first six months of this year. So that's brilliant. Poaching solved, right? I wish. Yeah, these <laughs> figures go up and down all the time, depending on local circumstances. And there are other places in Africa and in Asia where the figures have gone up. And I'm always a little bit suspicious about exact figures as well, 53%. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually really difficult to be sure exactly how many animals are being killed and how many are being found. The general trend is definitely not good. As I say, you do get periods when there might be a it looks like everything's being solved and it's doing well in a particular national park or a particular country. But overall, the general trend is negative. We're we're losing more and more rhinos and elephants and lions and tigers and everything else. One of the things I encountered the other day was just literally trying to find out how many of a species there are. There are loads of different ways to sort of categorise it. So people are sending up drones to try and count tigers or there was a, a guy the other day who discovered the best way to make sure you weren't counting the same one twice was to count the whisker patterns. And just to simply know that what how many there are is hard in the first instance, let alone then finding how many we've lost and how and why. Well, don't you think that's scary in itself, just the fact that there are so few tigers that you can spend the time counting whiskers to tell one individual from another. And there are other, you know, many parks around the world where the the big mammals that are endangered, they know everyone individually. I mean, there's a there's a park I know quite well, a rhino sanctuary in, in Kenya called Old Pejeta. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful place full of rhinos. And the patrols, it's all fenced and it's patrolled 24 hours a day. And the patrols know all the rhinos individually. And if they don't see one particular one for a few days, they actually send out search parties to look for it sure. and tick it off. It's almost like a... You know, a school, a school register. register, they call yeah. out the names. and If there's one missing, off they go and look for it. And that, to me, is really scary that we know them all individually and we look for individuals. But as you say, there was a, to, I think there was uh, a silverback recently. I think it was in, I want to say Uganda. I could be completely wrong with that. But there's a silverback, one of the, the area's most well-known celebrity silverbacks. And the guy who killed it, poached it, uh, got six years in prison as a result, but mostly because it was a celebrity gorilla. But that's a landmark if that's going to shift things in those directions. Well, it is interesting as well, the fact that um, ecotourism gets a lot of criticism, people flying around the world and climate change and so on. But one of the, the big benefits of ecotourism is that 
individual animals do get known. I mean, there was the famous case of Cecil the lion Mm -hmm. that was killed a few years ago. And he even had a radio collar on him and so on. And that got headline news all over the world. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing that individual animals are known and a lot of people care about them. If something happens to them, it, it raises the stakes and, and gets people to know that, you know, reminds people that these animals are being killed. Mm-hmm. But in t- going back to your question about counting and numbers, it is very, very difficult to be sure how many there are left. You know, the Indian government issues uh, a figure, population figure for tigers every year. And it always causes so much fury, so many people arguing that it's not that many, it's more. And, you know, nobody really knows what what we're trying to do is to look for trends. Mm -hmm. So we know that it may be low hundreds or low thousands or whatever species we're looking at. But if you do the same way of counting with the same people, the same techniques, the same times of year, the same times of day, whatever is necessary, if you do that regularly, then you can tell if the population is going up or going down and whether it's 723 or 844 doesn't actually matter yeah it's whether it's more the latest count or fewer yeah it's the same as tracking how many people listen to your podcast or how many people have got a case of corona recently well always they're on the higher side (laughs) (laughs) yeah unfortunately so do you when you were out on how you've been out on poaching patrols quite a lot i guess in your earlier part of your career um, yes, I did a lot from about the mid 80s onwards and up until about, um, I don't know, five or six years ago, I, I was on patrol a lot. Were you, as you're saying, you recognise certain animals? Was that the case with yours? What were you monitoring? What were you trying to support the numbers of? Well, it was a mix. I was I was dipping in and out in different countries for different species. So I was on patrol in, um, in Burma and Cambodia, Kenya, uh, Tanzania, Zambia, Russia all sorts of different places for different animals. And you do get to know individuals, even even um, doing a couple of weeks on patrol, you know, you're starting to see the same individuals. It's like, you know, there aren't that many of them in many of these parks, so they are known. And even the, the tracks can be recognised. So I remember on a few patrols, the rangers were finding rhino tracks and they'd know which rhinos they were, not, not even by looking at the animals themselves. Mm-hmm. And you get to know, I mean, the whole point is they get to know every pocket of where they're, they're patrolling as well. So what fascinated me was they, they knew every bush, every tree, every marking. You know, they were aware and awake to every possible change, not just with the animals, but with any people having been in the park, any sign of activity. It is all about knowing your, your subjects, the, the animals you're protecting and your locations really, really well. There's a photo on your website of you standing next to a man in a balaclava. You've got your balaclava rolled up rather natally. Um, Thank you. Um, it's sort of like a sort of jaunty sailor I'd go for. Um, uh, which <laughs> that is... wasn't the look I was going for. No, I mean, it's the AK-47 that you're holding, which gives it a slightly darker tone. I mean, is this a common occurrence? Do rangers always carry... Um, machine guns like what it what is it like to be a ranger i mean this was with tigers in siberia wasn't it that that um russian patrol is is a good example of what it's like and um i i was actually trained in using a kalashnikov before going on these patrols because they often get attacked by poachers um the patrols themselves are accompanied by secret policemen and the, between them, they're armed with everything from knives to Kalashnikov submachine guns. It's like going to war. 
and and that that particular photograph was taken on a two-week patrol so there was a group of people i think there were there were eight rangers and two secret police we were patrolling in an area 600 miles north of vladivostok in the russian tiger t-a-i-g-a mm-hmm. and they were they all lived in vladivostok and the reason they're patrolling so far from home living so far from where they work is that the first problem they're facing is they're being harassed by the poaching gangs their families are being threatened they're being threatened on a regular basis so it was decided that if they lived far away there'd be less harassment sure they go on these two-week patrols and it was one of the toughest two weeks i've ever had in my life i have to say we slept rough the whole time we just slept wherever we happened to be when it started to get dark a few times we were in abandoned buildings they were, we didn't have one thing i remember we didn't have much water <laughs> They seem to survive on vodka. <laughs> They're really tough men, these guys. And uh, I, I, I like them enormously. They're fantastic people. But I couldn't keep up with the vodka drinking. I remember I would actually, luckily I had a handkerchief with me. And I was in the forest with them. We'd be stopping for a vodka or a coffee. And I'd be filtering muddy water from pools in the forest through my handkerchief. Because <laughs> I was just desperate to drink water. I mean, that was particularly tough. We were being bitten to shreds the whole time by um, mosquitoes, ticks rather, carrying encephalitis. We we um, were just filth. We never washed, of course. By the end of the two weeks, we looked like we'd been giving living rough for all our lives. I remember one night waking up, there was a, a mouse on my chest. Another night, there was this giant cockroach halfway up my nose. We had two shootouts during the two weeks, which one poacher got shot in the leg. Um, and, and they're very scary shooting. I didn't I didn't use my I wouldn't have used my Kalashnikov unless it was a matter of absolute life and death. Uh-huh. But, you know, they they had scary weapons. And this is normal. We got ambushed by poachers. We were driving along into um, land cruisers just to get to the point where we were going to go on foot patrol. And we got ambushed and there was a shootout. I mean, this is a normal thing for these people. This is, this is a typical patrol. What do you mean uh, by shootout? You came across people and tried to stop them doing their poaching or they sought you out to get rid of you so that they could safely go off and poach? Like, both. Both, okay. The ambush was, was obviously them attacking the patrol and the, um, there was a shootout in the forest when they were trying to arrest some poachers. They, they risked their lives. I mean, I have to say, if I had to pick my heroes of conservation it wouldn't be any famous name that you'll have heard of it would be these people who none of us have heard of mm-hmm. and that story from the russian far east is being repeated all over asia all over africa in many parts of latin america and so on and these people are going out living unbelievably tough lives threatening their lives are threatened on a daily basis and they're being paid a peanuts that's the other thing is you know I always feel they don't get enough support. They they need money. It costs a lot of money to train rangers, to provide them with, you know, you need insurance because they they do get shot and they get injured. And, you know, if they survive, they end up with these awful injuries. They need insurance to provide food for their families. They need um, proper equipment like radios, vehicles that are operating. And a lot of the time, not so much in the Russian Far East where they're better funded, but a lot of the time they're doing all this on a shoestring you know the, the best they've got is an old bicycle they don't even have mosquito nets so not only are they facing these threats every day they, they're doing it almost in rags and they're facing poachers very often who are funded 
to an unbelievable level. You know, I mean, that some of the the local poachers might be just local villagers, but the whole system of poaching is funded like a, a drug cartel. Sure. You know, I've actually just finished watching, I shouldn't really admit this, on Netflix, a, a series called Queen of the South about Mexican drug, drug cartels. Uh-huh. And it reminded me of the whole poaching industry. You know, the, the, the top people, the ones who are making all the big bucks, are surrounded by lawyers. They've got 24-hour armed guard. They've got politicians and police in their pockets. They're, they're the untouchables. It's sure. just the same in the wildlife poaching field. So... I guess my question is, why do these people, these heroes of conservation do it? Is there a general theme going through it? Is it just they love the wildlife or they love the peculiarity of the lifestyle? Like to to commit your life and to risk your life for this end is, is a thing that a lot of people wouldn't be prepared to do. Well, it's a good question because there are other problems they face. You know, a lot of the people around the parks or, or, and some of they live themselves around the parks are very against the anti-poaching patrols because they're living below the poverty line and rely on the parks for bush meat and for uh, fuel wood and that kind of thing. So they get antagonism where they live. The conditions, not just the poachers are tough, you know, they're, there are venomous snakes and it's quite common for them to get bitten by venomous snakes, sleeping rough. There are dangerous animals, the ones they're trying to protect you know, there are lions often patrolling at night. There are lions out and about. The animals are often traumatised if they've, they've, for example, found one that's been killed and it had a, a, a baby with it. That's traumatised and is dangerous. It's physically demanding. I remember going on an anti-poaching patrol in Cambodia a few years ago and we, we walked 130 miles in four days through really tough terrain, days and nights, I mean, I could barely keep up. I was, when we first started, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be so embarrassing. I'm going to have to go back because they, they, they'd fit, you know. They, but, but again, everything about it is unbelievably tough. So why do it for $250 a month if yeah. they're lucky? In some parts of the world, it's $50 a month. And I think there are obviously they, they need work. Mm-hmm. They need to pay their families, although they'd earn more money if they poached themselves. And the, the other extraordinary thing is that they are always being tempted with bribes by the poaching gangs, you know, keep quiet about this or give us information about that. And the bribes will be more than their monthly salaries. And yet they turn the bribes down. So why they do it, they really genuinely care about the wildlife they're trying to protect. Sure. Do we know what the rate is of poacher murder is do we know how many are killed a year how risky is it we've got a pretty good idea there have been lots of studies to try and find out and of course a lot don't get reported the ones that we've actually managed to identify and name in the last 10 years it was about a thousand were killed in the line of duty so that's two rangers losing their lives every week and we reckon it's probably quite a lot more than that because many parts of you know the developing world you're just not hearing about these rangers being killed. Half of those are killed by poachers in shootouts. Um, and I remember going, I was going on a patrol in Cambodia in 2006, and the week before I got there, the guys on the patrol were all killed in their hammocks. They were asleep in their hammocks on patrol, and they got macheted by poachers. So they would have been in the the figure of a thousand. But many others are 
killed in accidents. You know, I was on another patrol in, in India. We we're in some very, very difficult terrain and one of the guys fell and he broke his back. And we're in the middle of um, Kaziranga National Park in India. And it was unbelievably frightening and difficult getting him out of the park mm-hmm. with a broken back to the nearest little hospital in the middle of nowhere. Um, that's the other thing that, they're, they're, you know, they're a long way from any sort of help. And many others, you know, that thousand over 10 years, two a week sounds pretty horrendous. But um, many, many, many more thousands are injured. They're either wounded by bullets or they get caught in traps set for wild animals um, or injured in physical fights and that kind of thing. And we have no figures on that. We just know that it's, it, it does run into the thousands um, in the last 10 years, last decade. I think the, most, the, the, the figures show the most dangerous national park in the whole world, if you're working as a ranger, is Virunga Volcanoes National Park uh-huh. um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's where the mountain gorillas are that yeah. you mentioned. And, and in, the, in that 10 years, 150 rangers have lost their lives. I'll never forget being there in Uganda when somebody showed me a photograph and the photograph had been taken of a team of 30 rangers five years before. And there was red um, sort of felt tip pen circles around six of the rangers. Mm-hmm. I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, they're the six that are still alive. And that I'll never forget it. That, that brought it back, you know, brought it home as to what an unbelievably dangerous job this is. So, I mean, th- those are all the reasons not to become a ranger or an anti-poaching specialist. Is there anything that you can say that might inspire people to want to get out there and do their bit? Well, the animals are amazing animals. Uh-huh. I mean, they're protecting some of the most extraordinary animals on the planet, elephants and rhinos and um, lions and tigers and what have you. And they need all the help they can get. If you care about the animals, then you will put your life on the line without the anti-poaching patrols there would be none of these big endangered mammals left i mean you know the, the obviously the the fundamental solution to all of this is stopping the demand mainly in asia but until we can do that if we are ever ever able to do that we have to physically protect the animals on the ground because there will if there's demand there will always be poaching and so we, we, this is why we desperately need to do everything we can to actually be there, provide round the clock protection and to stand between the poachers and the animals and to um, stop them being killed. So that's the motivation is, you know, without that sort of help um, on a daily basis, they wouldn't be here at all. It's worth noting that there are obviously those people in the UK who are trying to stop the badger cull or trying to stop for example, high-speed rail links going through ancient woodlands and whatever, who are maybe not putting themselves at risk for large cats or rhinos or elephants or the like, but are still doing what they can for the local environments. There are still warrior environmentalists out there doing their piece, which is good to see. Well, do you know, that, that thereby hangs a very interesting point, is that um, it's not just the people on anti-poaching patrols that are being killed. That There's never been a more dangerous time around the world for being an environmentalist and there's a there's a fantastic organization called global witness mm-hmm. and they keep tabs on the number of environmental campaigners that are being killed around the world and on top of the the patrol guys um last year they reckon well they know of and again this is probably an underestimate 
212 people, environmental campaigners being killed around the world just in that one year. And that number is growing exponentially. And it's it's corrupt governments, um, big businesses that are doing the killing. They're literally hiring assassins to silence these environmental campaigners. Um, and they're not only being murdered, they're being tortured, captured, beaten up. There's sexual violence, there's wrongful arrest, all sorts of things to try and stop these people campaign. They're campaigning against things like dams and illegal logging and sure. um, huge agribusiness, um, palm oil plantations, that kind of thing. So, you know, you're right, people in this country are campaigning in the UK against the badger cull, quite rightly. But what's amazing here, it's very frustrating, is that we can, you know, call government ministers big fat liars for telling us that the, the, that killing badgers is going to solve the badgers and tuberculosis problem. And we can point accusatory fingers at owners of grouse moors who are persecuting hen harriers, and we're not going to get murdered. You know, so much as we get frustrated with all the environmental issues we're tackling in the UK and our own country, um, we can do it and we can argue and we can campaign and we can criticise government as much as we like. OK, it might not make much difference a lot of the time, but um, we can do it without fear of being murdered. And that is not the case in a lot of other, a lot of other countries. And, you know, the big danger zones are Colombia and the Philippines. I think about half of all those killings are in those two countries. Brazil is another very bad country to be an environmental campaigner mm -hmm. and so on. So we need to thank our lucky stars that we can actually say something. I think one of the things that shocked me, since we last spoke on the record, we went to um, San Ignacio Lagoon together to go and see the great whales in the lagoon. And you were telling a story about how there are, I guess, anti-poaching patrols there trying to protect the abalone fields that are within yeah. the nature reserve of where the grey whales are. But how even they are uh, victims to groups coming up with coming up in boats with AK-47s and shooting them. Well, anything that's worth big money, you know, abalone is a is a very valuable commodity. It's it's most of it's exported to Japan where they pay big money for it. And if you've got a lot of abalone in a field offshore, if you don't look after it, somebody's going to come along and nick it you know, the more valuable it is, the more they're going to try and nick it. And, and and you do end up with people coming over with guns again. A lot of it's all intermixed. You know, the the guns are owned by people who, who are involved in drug cartels, but they're also doing wildlife trafficking on the side. So it is all interlinked, often the same people who wouldn't think twice about shooting somebody over valuable wildlife as they wouldn't think twice about shooting somebody over drugs. So, yeah, even even stuff like that that we never really get to hear about needs to be protected on a daily and nightly basis. And I guess this is all just because of the extreme uh, demand that exists. I think I was reading the other day that something like 60 billion pounds a year that China is still uh, spending on animals for food, traditional medicines, other uses, that kind of thing. Don't get me started on China. Chi China is the root cause of a huge number of these wildlife conservation problems you know the reason people are hunting tigers is for tiger bone wine they're hunting rhinos for rhino horn they're hunting elephants for elephant ivory and so on and it's all almost all because of china china i have to say sees wildlife as a commodity most people in china don't get the way we think about wildlife they don't understand the concept of cruelty and they don't understand the concept of wildlife conservation. You know, you go to many cities in China, you don't see 
birds or hear sparrows chirping or anything because they've all been eaten. You know, I remember going into um, a restaurant in the middle of nowhere in China in a village and um, the walls were completely covered with cages and the cages were full of live animals and there were puppies, kittens, snakes, pigeons, uh, rabbits, I'm trying to think what else, anything you could think of. And you sit down at the table in the middle and you point at a cage and they take that animal off into the kitchen. You hear a bang and a squeak and it comes back with rice. And that is completely normal. And, and any wild animal is fair game. And likewise, wild animals in other parts of the world. With China's footprint growing in Africa, for example, with lots of big infrastructure projects, roads and so on, there's even more opportunity and demand for these animals to be taken from Africa and exported to China. Do you think it's changing slightly? I mean, I read a novel by Qi Jin Lu the other day, Chinese number one best-selling science fiction writer who referenced in that Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. And he's there talking about these topics in what would you suggest a, a Western view of animals. And also recently, as a result of COVID, they have, albeit temporarily, banned the farming of trading and consumption of wild animals. Do we think that there is some positive shift happening or is it just as bad as it ever was? Well, there, there are positive things um, for sure. And there, there are, there, you know, I, I was, I was um, talking very generally. There are people in China who care passionately about wildlife and conservation. There are some fantastic conservation groups in China. But again, it's a difficult country in which to, as we know, criticise the government and criticise... Increasingly so, especially if you're from Hong Kong. Well, yeah, absolutely. One of the great challenges with conservation in China is if you're an outsider, if you're a Westerner, Western conservationist or a Western conservation group, you're not going to get very far by criticising the Chinese and you're not going to get very far trying to work in China. You need to be doing it through Chinese organisations and they need support and funding without the Chinese knowing about it, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to be done um, quietly. Um, but there are some very good people working in China and they're making good progress on things like bear bile farming and so on. Um, as for the the wet markets, you know, the, where everyone believes the coronavirus started, I remember visiting the, the, the infamous wet market in Wuhan years ago and thinking at the time, it was probably 30 years ago, thinking at the time I need to hold my breath, you know, because... This is a plate. This is the ultimate petri dish for pathogens, mm -hmm. and and you know a lot of us, a lot of individuals and organisations have been campaigning against those wet markets. They're called wet markets because they are wet with water and blood on the floor, the blood, and then they're trying to wash it away. Because not just wildlife; it's a massive, massive drain on wild animals, um, but also because it's always been seen as a potential hotbed for some awful pathogen, as we've seen that will leap out of the market and, and hit the human population. So, you know, they are closed temporarily. They've been closed temporarily in the past. My guess is they'll just reopen again as soon as they can. This time, I think it's different. You know, in the past, China's always claimed it's none of your business. It's Chinese business. But now it's the business of the whole world. You know, even if you ignore the, the drain on wild animals and the threat to species like pangolins and so on, which is a big threat, it's all our business now, because if they keep those markets going, it's only a matter of time before you get another pathogen like the coronavirus could be even worse. You mentioned bear bile a moment ago, which I find interesting because despite banning farming and trading in, of wild animals, 
bear bile is also being used in a medicine that's recommended by the National Health Commission in China as a potential cure against COVID. Mm-hmm. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's what they've said. Yes, they said that I mean, early on, mad. sort of late March, early April. Well, it is mad. It's it's um, there's a there's another great fear in terms of approving these medicines. Is um, I don't know how true it is. I I've heard a rumor that the World Health Organization is considering approving traditional Chinese medicine en masse as an accepted form of medicine. And I'm sure some of it is, but if you have that sort of blanket approval, that that gives the stamp of authority they need for maintaining markets like the wet markets in Wuhan and uh, catching more wild animals and making all all these different medicines out of rhino horn and all the rest of it. Um, it's really quite scary. Whereas what we need to be doing is honing it, homing it all in, pulling it all in, and. Um, cutting back on the number of wild animals that are being killed. Before we went on the record, before we started talking, and we were discussing how organisations like Born Free and the David Shepard Foundation overlap with the projects they use and their intentions being aligned similarly. Where do you stand, therefore, an organisation like the World Health Organisation, perhaps not necessarily aligning themselves with environmental messages, which I think we'd all agree couldn't be more interlinked if they tried, especially now, especially with zoonotic diseases and especially with wet markets how can the world health organization consider a world that isn't supporting the environment if when we force humanity into rainforests when we force exotic foods onto market stalls and then into airplanes and then send um send a pandemic across the world how how can they not care about that well they have to hopefully they will it's interesting i think that's changed dramatically in the last couple of years i mean it's not that long ago when people thought of conservationists, environmentalists as weird people with ponytails and white socks in open toed sandals. And, you know, it's, a, it's an extreme view and it's people who love rabbits and hugging trees. And that's how that's how we were seen by many politicians and many big businesses and so on. I think that has very dramatically changed in the last few years, first of all, because of all the campaigns for climate change, partly also because more and more people are accepting we're in the middle of the the sixth mass extinction and thinking, even politicians are thinking, hang on a second, maybe this is serious. And now the coronavirus, which is linked with wildlife, I think finally people are realizing that conservation is is a fundamental part of everything. It's not just this side issue that you need to sort of, you might get a few green votes for and need to keep people happy. It's fundamental to all development. You know, other countries are way ahead of us in this. You know, UK is actually lagging behind in understanding that conservation should be a fundamental part of development and taken into account in everything we do. So I think it is changing. And I I hope the World Health Organization will, will see all this and involve conservation much more. Do you have any plans to go out on any anti-poaching patrols in the future? Or do you think it is a young man's game? Not that you're old. I'd made that mistake in the last interview accidentally insulting you you're the only one I do it to I don't know it's something about your wonderfully young looking face um (laughs) well ignoring the insult I well I I did stop going on them um a very good friend of mine got killed right next to me on an anti-poaching patrol I'm sorry and um and other friends have been killed and injured over the years and my family have to admit persuaded me to stop um because it was just a matter of time and I felt unbelievably guilty about that ever since because all those people I knew and and uh, 
you know, were friends and worked with are still out there. Many of them are still out there risking their lives on a daily basis. And I've, I've stopped. I would go out again um, if I could help in any way, probably not on a regular basis. It, it is a younger man's game. I, 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 joking aside, I would find it hard to keep up nowadays. You know, I mean, I found it hard 10 years ago and um, I think I find it even harder now. I mean, I, I would do it, but um, I probably wouldn't do it on a regular basis anymore because of that, because it is just a matter of time. Um, I can't think of anything positive to ask you to end this interview on. <laughs> um, so so perhaps what what so far, environmentally speaking, have you enjoyed about the last three and a half months of lockdown? Perhaps that's the best question to ask. Please um, say there's something. <laughs> well, I think there, there are benefits of the lockdown. There, there, are, there are many negatives around the world. And, and just, just to, to be negative for a moment, one of the problems <laughs> with lockdown and coronavirus with, with poaching that we've been talking about is that I think the last few months, the, the poachers have probably been rubbing their hands with glee in glee because, you know, the parks have been closed. Mm-hmm. Well, that was actually going to be one of my questions. How is COVID currently affecting? Well, yeah, it's not, not good. I mean, there are good things. Like there's a, there's a theory that lots of hedgehogs have survived this year because they've not been hit by cars in the UK and so on. But on a grander scale, certainly with poaching, it's been, been a bad thing you know there have been park closures you've had a diversion of law enforcement um to more COVID-19 related duties you've got reduced range of patrols you've got no tourists eyes and ears on the ground which is an amazing way of keeping poaching you know under control and so the poachers have been given much more of a free reign to to roam and hunt and and a lot of lot more people are out of work you know the safari tourism in Africa is, is worth something like $30 billion every year. And that, that supports a lot of families. And so without that money coming in, it means more people are below the poverty line and more people are tempted to go and kill animals for bushmeat and get into uh, reserves and take wood for firewood and that kind of thing. So the threats are actually worse and the, the protection is is worse as well so it's quite worrying from that point of view from a personal point of view um well i've been lucky i've been locked down in the country in dorset and um been getting up early in the mornings before real work photographing birds i've been setting up camera traps to photograph badges at night and enjoying all of that so i've spent more time in the uk than i have since i was 21 and enjoyed it and i think it's true of a lot of people is i think one benefit of this is that people have realised how important green space is. You know, for a period in lockdown, we all had our one hour a day for exercise, in inverted commas. And a lot of people spent that time in local parks or if you're in the countryside, in the countryside. And for many people, for the first time, thought, actually, this is really good for me. If I wasn't doing this, I'd be really struggling during lockdown. And they're appreciating the green space and the birds singing and the wildlife. And Maybe just maybe that will that will linger after everyone goes back to normal, if we ever go back to normal. And um, people will appreciate conservation of all these things more than they did before. Wonderful. I think that's a great place to end it on. Mark, thank you very much for talking to me again. Thank you. Great pleasure. A huge thank you to Mark for taking the time to talk to me again and a huge thank you to you for taking the time to tune in again, unless it was your first time, in which case 
please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you've been enjoying today's episode and indeed the series in general. Please go along to your podcast providers, use your, your mouse or your finger and click subscribe, like, hashtag approve, whatever it is. I don't know. The future's bright. The future's full of podcasts. Keep all, speaking of more podcasts, keep all of your eyes focused on your podcast apps this week because we may have, we do, a rather exciting bonus episode winging its way to you very soon. But until then, all my very best to you and yours. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.